Hi, and welcome to another installment of Odyssey Soundtrack Spotlight. This is David and Clark. Say hi, Clark. Hi, Clark. And uh, today we're going to focus on Varez Saraband's new deluxe edition of Jerry Goldsmith's score for the 2001 film Along Came a Spider by talking with the album's producer, Bruce Botnick. Bruce is a Grammy-winning producer and music engineer known for his work with the Beach Boys, The Doors, and Jerry Goldsmith, for whom he mixed over 100 scores and produced many others. Bruce has been producing deluxe editions of Goldsmith scores for a few years now, and his latest is the long-awaited substantial expansion of Jerry's music for the follow-up to Kiss the Girls, this one also a Morgan Freeman picture. Bruce, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. Okay, you know, you have my address, and you know where to send the money, right? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we'll yep. wire it. Uh, we've got the special Unmarked bills. code number for your Swiss account. And, and all of you out there, you know, in Radio Land, you know, you know, <laughs> I don't mean that. Yes. This is a considerably more atmospheric sort of score than you would typically expect from Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, did you have a sense of what it was about this material that inspired this particular approach? Jerry always spent a lot of time trying to understand the characters in the film, what they were doing, why they were doing it, understanding the emotion and how the story moved him. And you got to remember, he read it, he liked to read the scripts first. That was how he chose his movies, not by seeing them. He wanted to read the script and. Uh, Get, read, uh, feel the emotion off the page. And then when he saw the movie, it would either confirm how he felt about reading the script, or he saw something that he didn't see, you know, because of the director, his, his version or her, her uh, vision of the film. So sometimes he would gain some new musical realizations just from actually seeing that up on the screen and, and how it played. Yeah, he'd get more of an insight how long does it typically take you to produce an album like this? What is, what is your process like? Well, first thing I have to do is make sure I have all the elements. And luckily, I, I've kept a majority of the scores in Jerry's writing and all of Ken Hall's notes and my notes. Oh, so wow. when it came to this one, I knew exactly what the roadmap was going to be. And it's a matter of, of discovery. And, and then when you put the music up and you look at the takes and you, you look at why you, you put an insert there and why didn't you do it there when, you, when it, you, there was another place to get it. And, and you look, uh, sometimes we'd do a take and Kenny would write on it a whole description of the mood, of what was happening in there so that he could use that to build other cues in the movie because there are occasionally times when Jerry didn't write music for a scene in a movie and the director really wanted it and Kenny would build it. Hmm. It was still Jerry. Sure, yeah, yeah. But it, you know, it just... Would you wind up including that on one of your discs? As like, if that was, say, track 12, would you just go ahead and put it on there? Yeah, if, if we had the room uh, as of uh, alternate takes, you bet. Alternate takes. So I listened to this music three ways this week. Uh, we got we got promo MP3s of your album, and first I listened straight through, and it was curious to me because I had a memory of the original Varez album 
which unfortunately sort of ties to where I was at the time. I was a pretty morose guy. I wasn't fighting depression in the clinical sense, but that kind of gloomy guy sort of depression. And the original album, the particular cues they picked, me not having seen the movie, I thought, well, this is a score for a film that feels kind of like, tonally like David Fincher's Seven, only a little more emotionally hopeless. Not darker, just more more hopeless. And so I'm listening to your album, and it didn't hit me that way at all. And next I listened to just the uh, 30 or so minutes that are new to us in your album, because the first album was produced by Jerry and Robert Townsend. Like, what did they omit? What does that sound like? And in general, it's a lot of the investigation music, I would call it. A lot of the quieter cues where, you know, if you turn it up, you're going to hear all these nice, rich details. Then I played the original album, and once again it hit me. I thought this this first album feels like an action thriller that is hopeless, and the whole album doesn't to me. It's the spread out with all the cues in place. They don't tie together that way for me emotionally. So it seems almost like a different picture. And then I watched the movie. It's not a hopeless movie. It's it's curiously a really good film for about an hour and fifteen minutes. The first album, did you have an impression of it? No, you know, um, I didn't even go back and listen to it. All I looked at was what cues were on it, because I was dealing with the whole score. I mean, I just finished today uh, doing the legacy version of Hunchback of Notre Dame the, for Disney. Oh, for Disney, wow. That I did. And, and that's got about 160 minutes of music. Wow. So there's a lot of stuff that people will hear that they never heard before. Are we to cut that out? I don't know how close to the vest things like that need to be, but if so, if I have it I and you want it out, I will cut it out. I didn't, I didn't give anything away. Okay. Okay, great. I'm proud to say that it's a marvelous score. It is. And it's always been one of my absolute favorites. I mean, even including uh, two of the songs that we did in Berlin with, uh, for the musical in German. Oh, wow. Along with uh, songwriter demos, which are amazing because you hear a song being developed. I mean, one in particular where the melody is going along, and I think it was either Stephen or Alan, are 
telling the directors direction, the way, what's going to be happening here as they're going along. And it's, it's really cool stuff. I mean, I think this day and age where we're able to do that is uh, opening up history for people. Yeah. That's my favorite score of his, and I've always felt kind of really the, the underappreciated gem of the Disney Renaissance era. So that's exciting to hear that you're getting that going. When you hear it, you'll be amazed. I'm looking forward to it. Because it's a, it's a wonderful experience. But anyway, in the case of, of revisiting Spider for Jerry, it was so long since I had heard the score that I didn't recognize it. It all, it all was new to me, so which was actually kind of exciting. I just listened to this stuff tonight. You produced this album a while ago. That doesn't mean it's fresh in your head, like you just did it. But when I was going back and forth between uh, your original album, which I didn't realize was yours because I didn't read the credits uh, precisely enough, um, I just stopped at Jerry and Robert. The first cue, Night Talk. I listened to yours, and it's, as Clark describes, it's a very quiet cue. He, it's it's a, an odd opening cue for Jerry, he says. Clark did. listen to it on the original and there are these sort of whisper hisses that are much louder on the original one they almost it sounds like a sound effect probably not but it sounds like it plays like a sound effect and the, it's probably the most significant difference is that first track I went back and listened like oh those are there they're just mixed in a lot lower and I can hear more of the other instruments now did you, was you were you conscious of that or was that just you've got these things and this sounded right to you when you were putting it together this time it's kind of hard to say. Yeah. Because again, because I don't know what I made the original album from. I can't remember. Oh, the source might have just been mixed differently. Yeah, uh, and uh, where I wound up on this album is where I believe it needed to be, and that was uh, one of his electronics. That's that sound. Uh, Jerry. <laughs> there were many times when Jerry would do something that the sound effects people were upset about because they had built sound effects for it. And uh, Jerry would go, no, that's, that's a musical effect. That's an emotion. I mean, I know the whispers you're talking about, and it's very ethereal. Yeah. And, it, and, the, and the rhythm that he put in there is very mysterioso and spooky. And if, if they'd gone with the sound effects that, that, a sound effects designer had built, it may not have done the same thing. It may not have had the same emotion. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of my best friends are sound effects designers. Sure. I mean, Randy Tom, you know, Academy Award winning sound designer is one of my best friends. 
And, you know, we talk about this a lot, about the music and effects. And his approach to sound effects and why he's been so successful is he looks at it very similarly to Jerry, not to get in the way and not to lead the story beyond where what it really is. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry that they never got a chance to work together because I think they would have really gone on really well. Jerry was very aware of all aspects and, and, and a collaborator, but uh, he didn't shy away from doing things, making sounds. It happened quite a few times where he would do something and the sound effects des a designer would actually show up on the stage and sit there and go, ah, I see what he's doing, mm -hmm. you know. And then may, sometimes they get in discussion with the director and Jerry might not take it out or we'd put it on a separate track so that they could use it or turn it or not. Yeah. But Jerry liked his mixes to be locked so they couldn't fool with it. That's hey, you know, Jerry didn't do this, but I come from rock and roll and pop music and all that. So I always approached what we did as rock and roll with dynamics. If it's going to roar, I want it to roar. Jerry's music to do the same. So uh, uh, there were times when there would be a cue and I would say to him on a playback, I said, I'm having trouble getting air here and there. I said, is there any way to clear it up? And he knew exactly what I was talking about. He'd go out and take, say to you know, woodwind section, you guys tacit, don't play. Hmm. You over here do this, don't do that. And it would open it up so that it had the clarity because he wanted his music to be heard, but he never wanted it to overwhelm or to get it in the way. So you, uh, you didn't refer back to the original album, but your mix is a touch different here and there. I, I did an A-B test tonight, uh, and mind you, I'm only, in your case, I'm only listening to your album via the promotional MP3s, mm. but still... Which is a terrible way to listen to something. It is. So go ahead. Yeah, so I'm listening to, you know, Varez Waves, or whatever it's on the CD, and, and comparing to yours. But here's the thing. There are still things like, there's a cue called Megan Overboard. Mm -hmm. And the brass is crisper on your album.
even in an MP3. Yeah. And the quieter parts there... Are, are up a bit. Now, this isn't some kind of a compression thing because in the first few tracks, and they, they overlap the, the first four tracks are the same on both albums. Your first and fourth, Night Talk and Megan's Abduction, you have more dynamic range. The quieter parts are quieter, the louder parts are more punctuated, and also still kind of clearer. And then there's a cue called profiling near the end. And right at about a minute and six seconds on yours, there's a keyboard that has this kind of rhythm that goes under. And on Varez, there's no keyboard there. It's just kind of a hum. Well, you know, when I built the album back way back then, I can't remember what I used. I mean, what I used for my source. It could have been off of a DAT tape for all I can know. Right. You know, because when I have a chance to get in and do it anew, I approach it differently because I'm not the same person I was then. Uh, it all has a different meaning to me. Yeah. So, and I'm I'm responding emotionally. It's it's always an emotional response, and I I, I know it was it was like that for Jerry. I mean, we'd a lot of times choose a take that wasn't played perfectly because emotionally it spoke better, hmm. or we had an accident in there where a dynamic happened that we didn't really plan on that really was exciting. So going for something that that maybe has a little bit more more feeling in it over something that's a little closer to technically perfect. Yeah. I mean, that's always the case. I mean, even in my rock and roll days, it's always the way that I looked at it. It's about performance. Mm. It's not about being perfect. Jerry liked to do long cues because he liked the performance and the dynamics that would happen. And so he would rehearse the orchestra and we'd do it on tape to the point where if we'd rehearsed it much longer, we'd lose it. Then it would just be very cold and not emotional. So he was very, very cognizant and aware of that. And occasionally he'd ask me, do you think we've gone too far? And I'd say, you know, the other take, it was really incredible.
I mean, I've had first takes of some of these long cues that are a mess, but boy, they're fun, you know? But we didn't have enough room on the album to, to put a couple of those on there. So you're saying he did them straight through. He didn't do them in pieces. He didn't patch them together. He would do six minutes right in a row, beginning to end. Yeah, and what we would do if there was, if it was a good take and there were a couple of places where they were messed with a French horse, couldn't hit a note or, you know, something like that, or somebody came in early, we'd, we could go to another take and grab that, or he would record the two or three bars that I needed, and so Kenny could cut it in. Hmm. Three on three, pick up from measure 32 to 36, take 45. That kind of stuff. Performance is everything. And it connects more. And Jerry used to feel, and I still feel, the most successful scores are ones that you don't notice. Unless it's a real, you know, thematic thing that you're driving home a, a character's theme. Sure. Like in uh, Out of Africa, for instance, you know. Or you want to hear Darth Vader's theme when he's on screen, that kind of a deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In this case, there's this suspenseful idea that runs through the score. Um, it often appears on low plucked strings. It's the one you can hear at the beginning of mm -hmm. the missing picture. Yeah. And when you listen to the complete album, it's all over the place and it's a key part of the, the musical tapestry. When you go back to the original album, you know, it, it pops up a couple of times, but it, it definitely seems like a, a more insignificant musical element there. Yeah. Um, so something like that being restored to its rightful place as kind of a central piece of the musical puzzle here seems like uh, one benefit of this. Oh, I, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. That, that's something that we found on a lot of scores, that when we can tell the whole story, you get a better picture of what's going on and, and how those elements were used. Uh, I think the focus on the original album was such that you only, I mean, you felt one particular emotion or sound more than anything else. So if you hadn't seen the movie, or and if the score hadn't stayed in your, your brain, you'd have a feeling, oh, this is what it is. It's like during black and white television, right? That when you saw old black and white movies from England, and when you went to England, you thought England should be black and white. <laughs> sure. I mean, I was surprised. I got off the plane, it was in color and, three, and 3D no less. That leads me to something else I wanted to ask you about. Uh, he, he does something nice in this score, in the final cue of the score, Not My Partner, that segues into a re-edited version of The Ransom. Mm -hmm. Which plays over the end credits. Right. Um, it, it sounds like the final notes of Not My Partner were, were written with that particular lead-in to the credits in mind. I'm assuming that's the case. Yes.
And that was something that he, he did with some frequency, it seems. Yes, with some frequency. And he would map it out on the score. Kenny Hall would have it on his score in red, you know, where things are going and, and what cue to go to. And then basically, I think Jerry would lay out the first and second cue. And then you take it from here, Kenny. I trust you. For an early 2000s thriller, this movie is, is pretty generous to Jerry's score in the mix uh, during those big action sequences in the amount of volume it gives him in contrast to some of the big noisy effects. He doesn't really get drowned out very often at all. Alex, that's Dimitri. something that that struck you on this project um as i say the, the jerry always wrote for the moment and he more often than not would tell the director that he didn't need any music here and just because a scene you know is an action scene doesn't mean it has to be real fast and noisy right you know there sometimes it's a lot more effective with what you don't do and how it plays that you can create more tension in the scene. And, and, I, and that's what Jerry did. I mean, I, I got a, a DVD of the film because I wanted to see it, because I wanted to see what, you know, hear how it had worked. It's kind of a visual thing for me. I mean, I am very visual in what I hear, and I know that Jerry was too. That's one of the reasons we, you know, we were simpatico, is that we, we saw with our ears. He could take you places that you didn't anticipate visually. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, listening to Fantasia, I had seen the movie, I don't know, maybe two years old or something like three years old. I remember the dinosaur, so when the suck, when that sequence happened, where they're, you know, they're, they're dying or they're attacking one another. <laughs> I heard the music and I visualized it. And Jerry's score would do that for me. There are scenes in um, Star Trek, the motion picture, that I, I can tell you right exactly what was going on in the scene. Same thing in Poltergeist, same thing in Total Recall or Basic Instinct. And in Patton, which I didn't have the joy of doing, you know, I know where certain things happened. I mean, you know, Patton 
He's only got 33 minutes of music in the whole movie. Yeah. A three-hour film, right? And a three-hour film, yeah. 33 minutes of music, and shows you how meaningful less is more. Bruce, uh, I listened to someone mention, might have been Jason Drury talking to you, actually. And I think one of you pointed out that Jerry was particularly good at putting music under dialogue. A lot of the music is under dialogue in Along Came the Spider. His surveillance was better than ours. He's been at this for years. Imagine the patience. The dedication. You sound like an admirer. Well, he's... It's like a spider. And I happen to like spiders. He's got an elaborate setup here, boss. You want to see how he stayed clean at school? It laminates a plastic veneer over your hands. Look at this. Foam rubber. Looks like he was wearing prosthetic appliances. You know, it's, it's a detective movie. There's a lot of discussing and talking, and there's some sneaking around and looking, too. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that this has a lot of very quiet cues. The album you've produced, the full score, is less an action thriller. It's more of an investigation. The score is for an investigation movie, which is what it is. Do you have any in insights into that, into what you see him doing that makes his music work so well under under dialogue versus maybe others? Jerry was really particularly good with dialogue. If you listen to his music, it's not real thick. Uh, he and I used to talk about air and clearing dialogue to make sure we weren't in competition with the dialogue. In competition with sound effects, yes, hmm. but not with dialogue. How do you think he achieved that? Was it just by having instrument choices that avoid the spot where voices are? Or did he have you guys EQing things? What was the method, do you know? No, he, uh, he wrote intentionally to support the dialogue. And, you know, that takes a certain amount of talent to be able to do that, to be able to visualize that. I wanted to ask you, there, there are a lot of interesting um, synth sounds and mm. textures in this score. a little bit about Jerry's process in terms of finding those and incorporating them into the music. Yeah, uh, in regards to electronics, synths and, and samples, he always looked at them as not to fill out the orchestra or to replace the orchestra. They were always an instrument in the orchestra. So uh, it was not unusual for me to have not only the full orchestra to deal with, and that could be like upwards to 35 micro, 36 microphones, not using them all, mind you, but they're there, sweeteners. And another, you know, 20 to 40 inputs of electronics that are all running live. Wow. Because we did these scores all live. We mixed live. I mean, that was, to me, is one of the great joys because when the red light went on, the orchestra performed, 
Jerry performed, I performed, <laughs> Ken Hall and his clicks performed. And we were all in sync together and captured that as a mix. Most of the time, the live mix held, you know, because Jerry didn't like to remix. But then occasionally, you know, when Jerry would come in the booth and listen to it, and he'd go, and he says, I think we should remix that one and bring up the winds here and there. And maybe what I would do is just mix that little portion so Kenny could cut it in. But we're, we were really into uh, performance and capturing the moment because, uh, I mean, I've found this out over the years, uh, even in, in popular music especially, because that's where I came from, at least in my early days of recording, through the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s, before we really had a lot of tracks you had to make decisions. You mixed everything together. I mean, when we did uh, Poltergeist and quite a few films, actually, for a while with Jerry, we only recorded on 35 millimeter magnetic film, four channels. Four? Four. That was it, folks. Left, center, right, and surround. One, a mono surround. Yeah. So we had, we, we had to get it live. I mean, that's what all the mixers did then. I mean, I can tell you that there's a good reason for that because you get your reverb the way you want it. You get the balance the way you want it. You get the depth. You get the air because Jerry and I were always shooting for air. And what he meant by air was that the orchestra was three-dimensional and it breathed a lot. So when you put it up against dialogue, there was room for things to to to, to play. I remember in particular Mac Davis pop singer, yeah, country pop. I did an album with him and I did a song called Stop and Smell the Roses, which went to number one. Well, I'd finished doing whatever overdubs we did and it was really late at night, maybe probably after midnight. And I did a rough mix because in those days I would, and I even did it in, in the scores sometimes, would make a cassette and then play it on the car on the way home and listen to it the next morning. Well, when it came time to go mix that song for the single, I couldn't capture that moment. I couldn't get back to it. So that single, number one single, came off of a cassette. Of your tape. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's things like that. And then even in the, in, the, in the film, you know, Jerry would say, did you get that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, for, for quite a while when Pro Tools came in, we recorded simultaneously on MAG and Pro Tools, and then later on started splitting things out. But Jerry did not like to have the dubbing people have a lot on the stage. He didn't want his music remixed on the dubbing stage. That had to be a good feeling when you are performing live, all working together, and you just nail it, and it's all right, and you know, yeah, we can use this. Yeah, and you don't think about it. It's done. And you have that emotional moment of satisfaction. There was a lot of that. I wanted to ask you, uh, there's, a, there's a little collection of um, audio supplemental material that you curated for the end of this album with a little bit of a behind-the-scenes sneak peek at the, at the process. 5M4 A and B, take 97.
Uh, can you give us a little bit more context for, for what we're hearing there? Yeah, what it is, is Jerry uh, and the orchestra, they love one another. They loved him, A, for his sense of humor, and they respected his music greatly. And they loved him for the, for the long cues because they got a chance to play. And they weren't playing what we call footballs, which are whole notes, and doing, you know, wallpaper. They played a piece, like it was a classical piece. So every once in a while, something would happen, and Jerry would make a comment, or somebody in the orchestra would make a comment, because there was a lot. It was very, very relaxed, and they nobody was afraid to talk to him or to, to kid around with him. Hmm. I mean, when we had Emil Richards in the orchestra, I mean, it was... It was full-time craziness. You know, it was wonderful. A lot of laughter. Uh, so what, what I tried to do, and I wish I had, we hadn't stopped the recorder so much, I would have had more of that to present to, to folks because it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I just put out the Morrison Hotel for the Doors, and one of the discs is nothing but basically two songs, all the takes and all the talking in between, and I'm doing the same thing on their L.A. Woman album, which I produced, where and it's the focus is on, yeah, this this take, and it's different, and they're learning it, but the, the talk in between and the humor and and the mistakes, oh, I goofed, or this or that, and it's, it's just enlightening, and it gives you an insight to what the music was all about or the process. It's the joy of being a fly on the wall. It gives you a chance to feel like you were there in some sense. Well, that is something that I feel in this day and age is really, really important to do. You know, some artists and some albums and you've got enough room to be able to do stuff like that and get away with it. You know, Because I know the fans like it. I like it. I love hearing little glimpses of takes. Those are, there are some of those on Looney Tunes, mm -hmm. you know, where you can hear. I mean, that's, that's wonderful stuff. I love it. I love it because it, it really shows the side. And, you know, had we been able to do it in the day, uh, we would have recorded a lot more of it. Yeah. Well, it's nice that you're able to give us, you know, a, a little taste of that. That leads me to something I wanted to ask you about. Uh, when you start working on one of these expanded editions of a score that you and Jerry had worked on years earlier, is that a process that tends to stir up a lot of memories for you? Well... <sighs> Sometimes, some, some movies more than other. I remember, especially in the case of a lot of Joe Dante films, I remember a great amount of things because they were uh, a lot of fun and there, there were little pranks that were done and <laughs> things that would happen in the orchestra. So those are very vivid. This one was not so. And we recorded this at Paramount Pictures Scoring Stage, which is, was in the uh, Bing Crosby building which has now been torn down and uh it's uh dubbing stages i mean they literally leveled the whole building and built two enormous stages and two medium stages and a bunch of little stages and um, that was kind of a, a sad thing because that whole thing at paramount jerry and i loved going there because there was a lot of fun they'd specifically set up a espresso bar <laughs> and have a, a gentleman come over and make espresso for everybody. You know, lots of things were fun. And the, the food was good at the restaurant too. <laughs> <laughs> but, but as far as memories, it depends on the music. It depends on the score. As you were working 
on this expanded album, were there any moments that hadn't been included before that you were particularly grateful to be able to to bring to light again? Any cues or or musical moments that you were like, wow, I'm glad this is out for people to hear now? Oh, well, I mean, almost the entire score. I mean, when we used to do these short albums, it was all about reuse payments. Yeah. How much it would cost. So now it's not that way. And we're able to present the entire score and the whole theme. Whereas if you listen to it from beginning to end, there's a story being told that we couldn't do earlier. I mean, it was a synopsis. It wasn't a complete story. Are there any discoveries that you're hoping people will make about this score now that they're able to visit it in its proper, complete form? I always look at when we put together these legacy packages and the complete score that people will discover what went into it and and the story it was trying to tell. And they have a more complete picture. When you see a movie without music, it has a whole different emotion than it does with music, yeah. especially if the composer is aware of what's being said and the emotion on the screen. That's about it. You know, they, they're able to, to, to listen and enjoy it as an entire piece. Because, you know, these guys were modern-day classical composers. Yes. I mean, if you think about the amount of music that Jerry Goldsmith wrote, or John Williams, or John Barry, or Elmer Bernstein. I mean, they wrote truckloads more music than than the uh, than the war horses, you know. Bruce, uh, we can't let you go without asking you. Um, do you have any other Goldsmith projects in the pipeline? Yes, but I don't know what they are yet. Uh-huh. I mean, you do over a hundred movies, and some of the studios have maintained all of the uh, files, and some didn't. So, I mean, I, I, I particularly enjoyed doing Basic Instinct and Total Recall. I mean, Basic Instinct is, a, is, a, is an amazing score from a standpoint of collaboration between the uh, composer and the director. We do want to talk to you about Looney Tunes. Oh, yeah. Sometime we want to, even though it's late, I mean, it came out, you know, a while ago, we'd still like to cover the score because, I mean, it's for two of our guys, it's among their favorite Goldsmith scores. It was a, it was a very, very difficult score for Jerry because he was, he was very, very sick. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, 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 like all of us, want to die in the saddle. Don't want to give it up because, you know, there are two women in our life, uh, our wives and our music. I mean, I have to. I have to say, I always like to uh, give credit to the wives because uh, without them, we'd be a mess. You know, because they know they know how to keep our creativity focused and in check. They they are the ones. That's definitely true in my case. There you go. And on that note, oh wow, and literally a note. NB- NBC. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce, thank you so much for talking to us tonight, for being flexible with our technical issues. Thank you. I love talking about this stuff. It's not like I want to live in the past, but it's a part of my life that I'm very happy to have been a part of. As, as Jim Morrison used to say, I'm proud of this 
to have been a part of this number. Yeah. Well, we're very grateful that you took the time to do it with us. It means a lot. Take care of you guys. Stay well and safe and sane, if at all possible. Yeah, that's the big one. Yeah. You too, we'll sir. Give it a shot. Bye, sir. Cheers. Bye.